everyone is so calm and serious. You know? Okay, great. Well, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Dan Banger. Uh, welcome to the session on real-world AI for the enterprise. Um, I'm going to try something new because everything, everyone is calm and, and you know focusing. So, right before I get started, right, I want everyone to make as much noise as possible for people to know how busy this room is and for people to know how excited people are here. So, in do you have a phone? I just laughed at you. It's fine. So, so in three, two, one. Good. So we already got the credits, now we can walk off, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> so with me today is Adam Wenchel from Capital One. Um, Adam runs AI Capital One and he's going to introduce himself uh, when it's the time to talk and he has a, a, a treat for you as to uh, real-time AI and the practical uh, experience of running uh, big workloads on, on top of AWS. <clears throat> I've been at AWS for about four years and I started as a uh, as an engineering manager in big data and DevOps CI CD. So uh, I spent a lot of time in the transition between you know, Hadoop and adoption of Spark and a certain number of ecosystem in the big data environment. And there was a lot of learning from there. And all of that learning was ported to machine learning when machine learning started becoming mainstream. And the reason why I, I, I like you know, telling that story is because a lot of the learning that we had from that time is, is happening today. Right, so back in the day, circa 2008, 2009, when you were talking about Hadoop and, and the Spark, because Spark didn't really exist at the time, but when you were talking about Hadoop, people were wondering what that was. Everyone was interested in it, but people didn't know exactly what that was. And it's almost the same thing that's happening now with machine learning, where everyone is interested in it, but people don't know exactly what it is. <clears throat> so our aim here today is to sort of clarify what AI is and clarify what it means for you as enterprise customer or customers or pretty much as, as any customer. So the first thing that I want to cover is a cycle for AI, the way, the way I see it. Um, you know, essentially AI is trying to mimic whatever is happening in a human world into a computer world, right? And as human, we do a few things. We, we perceive things as I see you, I perceive with my eyes, or I perceive with some sensors when I touch things. And after perceiving things, we do one of two things. The first thing we do is we either know the things that we perceive by having essentially a knowledge representation of what we perceive, or we learn from the things that we didn't know before. Right. We, can, we can perceive something new and then get information. I see that and, I, and, I, and I, I'm told that it's a speaker and I'm learned from that perspective. After learning, we apply some reasoning on top of the thing that we perceive and we either knew or, or we learned from. And then based on the reasoning that we apply on that, we do a couple of things. One is that we either plan an execution or we execute directly. A practical example would be a conversation. When I speak to someone in a dialogue, I perceive things with my ears and then I either understand what it meant by having a knowledge representation of it, or I learn by essentially learning from the conversation. And after that, I reason on top of that and I plan whatever I'm going to say in that conversation and I say it. So we perceive, we know, we learn, we reason, we plan, and we execute. In the human world, we perceive with things like our eyes and then our ears in the language and speak and, and speech or other sensors. And our knowledge representation comes from the memory. So it's, it's a static aspect of uh, what we know already. We learn using our brain in an adaptive fashion. And the way we execute is by using actuators, what I call actuators, essentially our, our voice, our hands, and, and different other things. So how does that happen in the machine world? Well, the machine perceives with camera or audio sensors or uh, click streams or user activity, user data, pretty much anything that generates data is a perception mechanism for the machine. And then what you do once you perceive data using the machine is that you can either have a knowledge graph or a NoSQL database or a graph database that is static, or you can learn directly, and that's where machine learning comes in or deep learning comes in. So you can learn directly using machine learning or deep learning. And the next thing that you do with that uh, whatever you learn or perceive or had knowledge representation of in a graph database is that you have uh, an execution in the real world and that materializes in what we call AI. So this is a walkthrough to what I like to show as a cycle for AI, just to show you how you, know, you can move from the, from the human world to the computer world uh, seamlessly. So to set the stage a little bit on 
you know, what is AI and what is machine learning and what is deep learning and how all of them, you know, get together. AI is sort of this umbrella term for everything that has to do with hardware and learning algorithm and gets to interact with the real world. The way I materialize that there is by showing things like a gaming where you play with a machine or a self-driving car. This is the most visible part of AI nowadays, where you have a car that is intelligently driving on streets like a human. Well, AI uses machine learning as a workhorse or a workforce to essentially use maths and statistical approaches and techniques to identify patterns on the data. So right there, we have an equation of what is known as a logistic regression essentially trying to understand whether one of two outcomes, whether something is good or bad, whether it's yes or no or something like that. So maths provides it, the machine learning provides the maths to AI. And deep learning is a subfield of machine learning that gets to uh, take machine learning to the next level as far as scaling out to a decent number of uh, GPUs. And the way it is organized is that it sort of mimics the behavior of the brain where we have connections between neurons in our brains, about 10 billions of them, and then by these neurons in our brain activating in a certain state, we have a certain information represented in our mind. So the challenge of deep learning is to activate artificial neurons, in other words, artificial neural networks, in the way that our brains activate whenever we perceive an information. The promise of machine learning or AI or deep learning is innovation. So the idea is that with machine learning or AI or deep learning, you will be able to solve the hardest problems that exist out there, the things that we do as humans, but we can't really express in a finite sequence of steps. Things like understanding the intent of someone when a person speaks to us without getting, to the, without getting the person to literally telling us what they mean. Sarcasm, how can the machine understand that? So you can also learn languages rapidly with deep learning or AI or machine learning. You can uh, solve problems or gaming. These are the most visible part of machine learning or reasoning overall. And then at Amazon, we have been applying machine learning and deep learning or AI for the better part of 20 to 22 years. This is what our webpage looked like circa 1997. As you can see there, we already had a recommender system or personal notification service back in 1997. So the idea and the concept of AI, using AI in production was already existing. Well, this, there were humans in the back end here, so it wasn't really a machine building models and whatnot. So people were actually looking at the list of books that people read and looking at all the list of books and trying to make the recommendation by hand because the hardware wasn't there at the time. But the idea and the concept was there. And it was the same thing in the rest of the industry where you had a lot of folks that had the ideas of neural networks, but there were a couple of challenges like big data hadn't picked up yet and uh, the infrastructure or the Moore's law hadn't picked up yet. So there weren't any GPU, there, was, there wasn't any ability to process a large amount of data. Fast forward a few years, this is what our web page looks like. Right? This is my page when I get on Amazon.com, and as you can see, I read a lot of TensorFlow books. Um, but this is what it looks like now. So at the, at the bottom layer, you have a list of recommender systems. Well, essentially, everything at, on Amazon.com webpage is driven by machine learning or AI, the way we decide what content to present, the way we decide what recommendation to put out to our customers is all based on machine learning or AI. So this is what my recommendations look like. But there's one aspect of uh, machine learning that I'm the most excited about, which is the robotics aspect or the self-driving automation. So this is a, a video of our fulfillment center, one of our fulfillment centers. And as you can see there, we have these little, what I call minions, that drive themselves around, and they pick up these 750-pound uh, bins, and they drive themselves around, they, they recharge themselves when they run out of energy, and, and they bring the items to the agents. Right? The agents don't get tired by walking around the fulfillment centers to pick up pieces. They just stay wherever they are, the items come to them. And another thing that's interesting here is that we don't use a random storage, oh, sorry, we don't use a common storage mechanism where you have all the books in the same bin and all that. We put things wherever we find space, and that's how we, it's, it's very effective that way. And what we use to, uh, we're working on using computer vision to extract things out of these bins based on identifying them. We also use AI for heavy duty, as in, you know, lifting items that are very big. So, We've been doing AI or machine learning or deep learning for over 20 years, and it, it materializes in a lot of ways. We have applied research happening with AI. We have natural language processing. Everyone is familiar with Alexa. We have things going around machine translations. We release an open source uh, product called Sockeye, 
which helps you do sequence-to-sequence -sequence modeling, essentially helping you translate from English to French or English to Portuguese. So look it up on GitHub, very interesting. But we also have customers doing AI on AWS today successfully. This is C-SPAN, one of our customers. What they do is that, well, well, they had a challenge. The challenge was to identify a number of people uh, for, let's say, putting together a clip. And if they wanted to know where, say, Obama was on January 24th, you know, 19, oh, sorry, uh, 2005 or six, they had to get people to go and read a lot, uh, watch a lot of content and find out wherever the person's where and then build a clip from that perspective. It's time consuming, it takes a long time, it takes a lot of effort. So with Amazon Recognition, which is one of our AI services, they were able to upload a database of about 97,000 politicians. And based on that, they can essentially run one query and say, show me where Mitch McConnell was on June 24, 2001. And every single clip where he was would show up with you know, the exact location of where he showed up. So very interesting. Another one of our customers um, uses AI for FDA-approved medical imaging, essentially doing some analysis on congenital heart diseases with deep learning on AWS. And for a system to have FDA approval, it needs to have human-level accuracy. And this system can achieve human-level accuracy in about 30 uh, seconds. Very effective. Well, I couldn't fit all of the customers that we have now doing AI and machine learning on AWS, but this is a very interesting slide, right? So we have a decent number of customers doing machine learning on AWS from folks like Zillow using AWS for um, predicting what is the price of a certain uh, uh, house in a certain location. Folks like NASA using AI on AWS to give voice commands to the robot. Uh, folks like um, FINRA using AI on AWS for analyzing uh, trades and doing essentially what, uh, what is called trade surveillance. A decent number of customers in multiple industries. But the key question that we want to answer today is how. How do you take advantage of all of these potential of machine learning and AI, and how does it make sense for you? How do you uh, come up with your own strategy around machine learning and AI? And there's this concept that I'm trying to coin called TP2AI, for essentially tools, people, and processes for, for AI. This is a way to, well, you have a North Star. The North Star is you want to enable your, your environment, you want to enable your company, you want to take advantage of all the benefits of machine learning. And this approach is essentially what I call the North Street, which is what are the next practical steps that you're taking in order to achieve that North Star, that North Star goal. The first thing that we're going to talk about is organization process. And by that, what I mean is that we're going to review the machine learning process and sort of tag the different uh, principles or entities that matter within that process. In order to solve a machine learning challenge, the first thing that you need to do, uh, the most important thing is to remember your business problem. Everything is around a business problem. We can get super excited about machine learning or AI or deep learning, but if it doesn't fit in your organization and if it doesn't solve one of your business problems, you're probably wasting time and money. So you start with a business problem and you convert that or you frame that into a machine learning problem. After framing the business problem and machine learning problem, you go around in the big data side of things where you collect the data, you integrate the data, and then you do a pre-processing pre or a preparation or cleaning. Arguably, that's about 70% of, of the job that you have to do. And after collecting, organizing, and pre-processing your data, you have to kick in the machine learning process, which is essentially a visualization and analysis or exploratory data analysis. The other thing that you need to do is feature engineering, and after you've engineered your features, you have to train your model. So you do your model training and you do your evaluation in your model. After that, you probably want to check if your business goals are met. And if they're not met, you have one of two things, or you have two things to do. The first one is to go back to collect the right data set that would give you the right intuition in the problem that you're trying to solve. And the second thing is to go back to visualizing the data properly in a way that uh, probably help you solve your problem. So after your business goals are met, so you have to iterate through that process a couple of times. So after your business goals are met, you want to put that in production. And to put your model in production, you probably want to deploy that somewhere. And when you deploy your model in production, it serves what we call predictions, because that's the that's main goal. And after you have your predictions, you have a lifelong exercise of monitoring and debugging and scaling all these um, infrastructure. And then hopefully you collect data again for retraining exercise. 
So who takes care of the discovery part of, you know, you know, essentially framing the business problem into the machine learning problem? Well, I would argue that the analyst takes care of it. And here, the call out is that you don't want to have a business intelligence approach where you are solving for the questions that you already know. The goal here is to help formulate the questions that you didn't even think about. So you need someone that has the domain expertise and the problem space that you're trying to solve and come up with new questions that are going to help you build innovative models. And the second thing is for the data collection and integration and pre-processing phase, you want to use some of our big data tools that are available right now in, in the ecosystem. Things like Amazon S3, which is an infinite scale storage uh, uh, service that you can use to store petabytes of data. Amazon Glue for ETL or Amazon EMR for uh, Hadoop workloads to essentially integrate, prepare, and clean your data at a, at a massive scale. And for the machine learning part of the exercise, what you want to do is that you want to use uh, Spark ML on EMR, or what we have is a deep, well, for deep learning, we have a deep learning army, a deep learning machine image. And with a deep learning machine image, you have a few templates, you have examples, you have the ability to scale that with a CloudFormation template, essentially giving you the ability to do interesting things like image processing or processing large-scale unstructured data sets. And for putting your model in production, you want to use tools like EC2, Lambda, the list is very long, I couldn't fit it all there, KMS for security, uh, ECS or NECR if you're using Docker as a scaling mechanism. You can have the best model in the world, but if you don't secure it, you have nothing. And at AWS, we have a decent number of tools to help you secure your infrastructure, from things around fine-grained access control to policy validation with IAM. It's also possible for you to bring your own encryption key. I actually have a customer that has his own encryption key in his own environment, uh, with his key management uh, uh, service in his own environment. And he brings his own key to the AWS environment whenever he wants to encrypt or decrypt his data set, right? So we can do all for you. We can either manage your encryption for you or you can manage it yourself and just bring your own key whenever you want to use it uh, for your workloads, the ability to import the key. Auditing is also very important for enterprises because you have to generate reports at the end of the month or a certain specific cycle. So you can use our APIs for that. Uh, we also have a decent number of compliance regimes from ITAR to uh, HIPAA to different number of ISO compliance regimes that you get from a starting point when you start using the AWS environment to host or, or train your machine learning or deep learning models. So again, security, compliance, a wide array of tools to choose from in order to build and train your machine learning and deep learning models and as well as uh, scaling and deploy and monitor and debug your machine learning models. The team I work for is called Amazon AI, and um, at Amazon AI, what our charter or our main goal essentially is to bring AI and machine learning in the hands of every developer. And for that, we have a certain number of products and services. Um, I'm gonna talk quickly about those. Who here is familiar by show of hands with the services at the top there? Amazon recognition, like Spali. Okay, good, 40 to 50%. Good, so the approach here is to, well, what we want to do as a key goal is to bring machine learning and AI in the hands of every developers. We have been doing this for about 20 years, so we know a little something about doing AI at a massive scale at amazon.com and at AWS. We figured, you know, we want to get everyone to take advantage of the possibilities and the features and the benefit of AI without having to reinvent the wheel. The way we've done with multiple other services like databases, the way we've done with RDS for relational databases, or the way we've done with EC2 and Lambda and a decent number of services, we're having the same approach towards machine learning and AI. So at the top of the stack here, we have what we call AI services. And the AI services is for folks that do not want to, or they, you know, it's, it's essentially geared towards people that want to take advantage of machine learning or deep learning, but they don't want to build or train models themselves, or they don't have to. It doesn't matter how much expertise you have in the field, you don't need to if there's a service there that can do it for you. And the way we put that is in what I call different lanes. Uh, one of the lanes, and the lanes really mimic what humans, again, human activities, what humans can do uh, almost naturally without being able to put that in steps. So the cycle of AI that we spoke about earlier. So in the vision lane, we have a service called Amazon Recognition. 
Amazon recognition makes it possible for you to offer your computers to see, essentially. With Amazon recognition, you can pass in an image to your to the service, and then what the service is going to do is that it's going to tell you whatever it saw within the image. And you can also do things like face matching, as in you know, passing two images to the same service, and then the service is going to be able to tell you that it's the same person, regardless of whether he grew the, or she, regardless of whether he grew the beard or, or, or not. And then another thing that Amazon recognition can do is you know, blurring out suggestive content or different other things on the images. Uh, in the speech domain, we have a service called Amazon Poly. Amazon Poly is a text-to-speech product. What it does is that it gives you a, a lifelike speech capability within your application by default. Using Amazon Poly, you can pass a text or a whole document, and then Poly is going to read it for you in a human way. That's what we use for Alexa. That's what a lot of people use for mobile applications that have chatbot capabilities, right? It's very easy to localize a service as well. If you have a service running in the US where people speak English and you want to localize the service in an area where people speak Spanish, you can just take the text content in English and then translate that um, um, in Spanish and then pass that to Polly, and Polly will be able to speak that natively in Spanish. So it's very quick and easy to move uh, from country to country with your product using Amazon Polly. If you want to have a chatbot capability within your application, which really applies almost everywhere nowadays, you can use Amazon Lex for that. And Amazon Lex is actually the brain of Alexa. What we've done there is that we took the Alexa, you know, the brain out of Alexa. We made it independent of the Echo device. We pulled it out and we made it available for people to use and build their own products and services. So using Amazon Lex, you can build a chatbot that interacts with your users or that interacts with your sales folks or pretty much everyone. At the platforms layer, that's for people that have their own data set that they want to train deep learning, sorry, machine learning models on, and uh, they want to do it themselves up to a certain extent. But they don't want to build the whole infrastructure stack from A to Z. Why would you need to do that? We are doing it for you. Right, so we have services like platforms like uh, Amazon EMR that with a certain number of clicks before the end of this talk and presentation, I can have a thousand nodes clusters running pre-configured with Hadoop and Spark, pretty much everything that I want. So the platform layer, what we do is that we do the 60 to 70% that needs to be done from an infrastructure standpoint, and we get you started in a way that you can just start training your models, connect to data sources, and everything that has to be done under the hood, the plumbing, is taken care of by us. So one of our platforms for machine learning is called Amazon Machine Learning. It's a very simple service that does three basic things for you. It does linear regression, logistic regression, and multi-class classification. Right? That's arguably about 70% of practical use cases out there nowadays. And then if you are a Spark and Spark ML user, you can launch a Spark cluster on EMR today and run your machine learning workloads with Spark ML. For data ingestion within the cluster in a real-time manner, you can use Amazon Kinesis. And if you're a Docker user, you can use ECS. And for ingestion in the batch manner, you can use Amazon Batch. So again, these are platforms that are geared towards making it possible for you to start at point 61 or 71 instead of point zero. And then going one layer below the stack, we have what we call AI engines. Who here is familiar with these names? MXNet, TensorFlow, Cafe, Tiano. A few people? I'm proud. Last time I had this talk, there was one hand in the air. So this is good. Uh, well, in the machine learning world, you, know, you have probabilistic models, classical models that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, but they really struggle when the size or the data footprint goes, goes very big. And so deep learning takes care of that by essentially having these highly parallel from a model and a data perspective using GPU way of handling your machine learning or AI workload. So deep learning is becoming very, very prominent and interesting. You can actually apply deep learning to every use case of, you know, that you would have applied at a platform layer. But it gives you more juice, it gives you more capabilities, it gives you more ways to push your, your exercise. 
But this doesn't, come, this doesn't come without a challenge. The challenge that you have is to set up a deep learning infrastructure, and it's fundamentally different from a traditional big data infrastructure. For example, what, what you do in the big data world is that you rely on MapReduce, and MapReduce really requires you to have some form of independence you know, when it comes to your data. It requires you to have multiple clusters and workers that are working very independently, and if they die, they can self-heal, and it's okay. Whenever the job ends, the job ends. But with deep learning or machine learning overall, you need to have a consistent view of what is called an error or loss function, and then you need to sort of derive and then do what, what's called backpropagation in an almost synchronous way. So it's a different fundamental architecture, and to build that kind of architecture is really, really challenging. And that's what these frameworks or engines are taking up as a challenge, to give you that platform where you can have all these operations of navigating a neural network or an artificial neural network without having to understand all the different math challenges that are happening in the background. So at AWS, we, have, we provide a deep learning machine image that is pre-configured with the most popular deep learning frameworks, Apache MXNet, TensorFlow, Cafe, Theano, PyTor, CNTK. Depending on your preference, you can use either one of those, but Mostly, most of the models that are created in different, uh, in different frameworks are also replicated in other frameworks. So it's just a matter of choice. And what we've done with databases, for example, where we support uh, MySQL, Oracle, Postgres, and different other databases, is the same approach that we're taking with deep learning engines, where we support any framework that's available out there and now our customers want to use. And at the infrastructure layer, of course, we, have, we make GPUs available. Uh, for you to use to train your models. And if you're familiar with Volta, which is the latest GPU that uh, NVIDIA released a couple of months ago, we have it available now in our P3 instances, and Volta is the piece, so I recommend you check it out for your machine learning or deep learning workloads. You can also train machine learning or deep learning models on CPUs, and you can integrate that with an end-to-end -end IoT ecosystem. Practical, I was just uh, seeing a, a demo the other day where people have you know, connected IoT devices within the hospital ecosystem that sends telemetry data uh, back to AWS using AWS IoT. And once it gets there, it's cored in real time using some machine learning services that are built on Amazon uh, Web Services. And after that, the response goes back to the hospital and the nurses can take a proactive action based on an integration between machine learning and, and IoT in the real world. So this is very exciting. I believe that that's where a lot of things are going to go um, in the future. And of course, mobile first nowadays. So if you're a mobile application developer, if your product supports mobile, there are many ways to integrate that with machine learning and deep learning. And at AWS, we have a mobile hub that makes it easy for you to get started, again, building your scaffold or building all your integration with the AWS environment and integrating that with our machine learning and deep learning services. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Adam who is going to give us a practical view of what he's done with machine learning at Cat1. Awesome, thanks, Dan. Yeah, so my name's Adam Wenchel. Um, I've been doing ML and AI for a while. I started my career in the late 90s at, at DARPA, um, where um, you know, doing, doing ML work at a time when there weren't a lot of jobs in the field. And uh, the algorithmic approaches we used back then were, were, were very different, but the, the kind of mindset that goes along with them uh, hasn't changed that much. And then from there, I kind of went into the startup world. And then about six or seven years ago, when, when a lot of these enabling technologies came along, like big data and GPU processing and things like that, and, and machine learning really started to kind of uh, be exciting again, um, the, uh, got back into it in a big way. And, and uh, have been fortunate to, uh, to be fully immersed in it since that time, now working for, uh, with Capital One, where we're uh, um, you know, really kind of uh, investing heavily in machine learning. And so I want to talk a little bit about that journey um, and, and what, you know, what, what lessons we've learned and share those with you. Um, so we're a financial services company. As you can imagine, when you're in financial services, applied statistics is really the name of the game, right? It's a very kind of pure business in that way. Um, and so it makes complete sense that machine learning and, and AI would be a, a, of, of a lot of interest there. Um, although there's been a lot of kind of barriers um, to entry and, and a lot of reasons why it's been very difficult and you haven't yet seen the same kind of disruption um, that you see in other industries. So this is one of, my, one of my favorite quotes by William Gibson. This is the great science fiction author. 
He said, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. So if you look at, uh, if you, if you look at um, industry, you know, you see, like, we, we see in the news these, these areas like that, the healthcare, the hard scan example that, that Dan mentioned where, you know, machine learning is doing these amazing things or self-driving cars or, you know, a number of areas. Um, but those are kind of very specific examples where it's being disruptive. And, you know, it's the same kind of situation, I think, in a lot of enterprises um, where, you know, maybe you have one or two projects in, in a large enterprise where you've had some success with machine learning. And, you know, and then you have a hundred or thousands of other areas where, you know, you haven't even begun to think about how it, it works out there. And, and when you talk about these groups, like the one or two successes that these companies have, you know, it's, it, it typically ends up, um, people talk about it like this, right? Like there's just some, some, some wizards practicing some dark magic in the back room and you have a few of these people who are really talented and, uh, you know, how they do it, it's, it's just, you know, kind of mystical, right? And so the, the journey we've been on has really been about how do we take that from this kind of this perceived kind of black art and really sort of make it a lot more commonly available. And rather than just having like one or two pockets of it here or there, how do we take it across the enterprise and really just make it part of our fabric and put it in the hands of a lot more people and, and a lot more business leaders and, and, and really enable it to solve many, many business problems and create a lot of value for the business. So we have a few philosophies about, about how that works. Um, First one is democratizing AI responsibly, right? So we want to put AI and machine learning in the hands of as many of, of people as possible, but we also need to do it in a really well-managed way. You know, we work in a very regulated industry, and you know, it's very important to us that we, we deploy this stuff responsibly in a way that um, really uh, makes sure that we're, we're doing the right thing by our customers and, and giving them the best, uh, the best service we can. And so you know, we, we want to spread it widely, but we want to do it in a very responsible way. We want to maximize scarce experts' productivity. So, you know, given that this field has just really exploded in the last year or two um, in terms of the numbers of people going into it, you know, you, you only have so many people who have five or 10 or 15 years of experience who really understand this stuff at a deep, deep level and have, have been through all the, the lessons and the hurdles and the pitfalls before. And so for those people, you know, a lot of times those people, the, the, the sad truth of these ML experts is they spend a lot more time doing the mundane tasks of data tiering and things like that. Um, and, and, you know, there's just a lot of friction in the process in most applied machine learning. And so one of the things we really focus on is how do we remove a lot of that friction so that our experts can really, you know, go farther faster and really focus on the high value parts of things. Uh, there's a lot more than the ML model. So by this we mean, you know, developing, it's one thing to develop an ML model on your laptop and, and show some potential for good results. But most of the time in the real world, in order to really get value out of this, you're building sort of production systems where you have, you know, a lot of times real-time data pipelines coming in off of integrating with legacy business systems and doing automated redeploy and refits and model monitoring and all these other pieces that have to come together. And so the model is just, you know, one piece of it. And you really need to think of these in a, in a very systems engineering approach. Uh, remember the infrastructure? This ties a little bit into... Uh, um, so, a lot, several of the other themes, the well-managed and maximizing productivity, reducing friction. You know, we, we really make a point of kind of investing in the infrastructure that, that we build um, and make sure that we have a solid foundation. We find that investing there pays massive dividends when you're actually applying it to business problems. Of course, we, we, we've built all of this on top of AWS, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but we've built it on top of uh, the services that Dan just talked about. You know, the more, the more we can leverage AWS, the more it frees us up to work higher up the, the value change and uh, work, on, work on engineering challenges that are closer to the business problem. And then the other thing to remember is just ML takes time. There's a lot of domain knowledge that needs to be gleaned when you're going into this stuff. Uh, and you can create a lot of technical debt very quickly, and you need to think about the long-term operation of these systems and not just get showing results immediately and, and then creating a headache for yourself six or 12 months down the road. And so that gets us into the, the, the road to production, which is uh, long and arduous and, you know, really is a journey. And these systems, unlike, you know, I think a lot of times people who come from software engineering backgrounds are used to, you know, systems where maybe you kind of get it to 1.0 and there's a little bit of maintenance upkeep. But, but really, once you've kind of, so there's a, there's a very discrete point where you've solved a business problem and you can kind of just go down to a skeleton crew working on it, put it in maintenance mode and move on to the next one. Um, but what we find is in machine learning, that's typically not the case. If anything, these programs tend to grow over time as they, as they deliver value. And so, um, you know, you really need to view it as kind of a journey and not just a, uh, you know, let's do this six-month project and we'll, and we'll close it out. So the road to production, 
You've built a great model on an ironclad pipeline and are certain you've got no technical debt. Well, that's probably not true. Um, there's a lot of things that you need to do on the road to production. So production's a hard place. You know, continuous monitoring, that's one of these things that's absolutely vital when you're, when you're working. So especially if you're in a, in a regulated industry, like if you're doing healthcare or if you're doing financial services, where you need to make sure that your model's performing and if there's any kind of deviation in expected behavior, you find out about it immediately. And you also need to be able to demonstrate this very clearly to, to regulators and your customers and other people that you're doing this in a well-responsible, uh, well, in a, a well-managed, responsible way. Uh, rapid ML model refit and redeploys. So there's a couple reasons for this. One is you, know, you want your, your scientists to be able to, to test different versions of the model and, and do different, you know, as they make changes, to really be able to do a nice CI/CD type process and push these out quickly. Um, the other thing is for some, uh, for some domains, in particular adversarial domains like cybersecurity and fraud, uh, where the, the, there's, you actually have an active adversary on the other end where they're changing their tactics. You know, you can watch them minute by minute, hour by hour, trying out different tactics. That automated refit and redeploy can actually help you um, evolve along with the attackers. And, you know, for those domains, being able to rapidly refit and redeploy models is critical to success. Um, model selection and hyperparameter tuning, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, um, but this again gets into making, maximizing the expert's productivity, right? So um, if, if you guys have developed models before, you know, there's, again, this is one of the areas where right now it can be a little bit of a black art where when you're selecting the hundreds of different parameters that go into your model and the, and the, and the, the, the neural architecture you're using, if you're using deep learning and different things, and so automating a lot of that um, allows your experts to, to get a lot more done a lot more quickly. Uh, GPU optimization, GPUs, large-scale GPU clusters are expensive, and so making sure that you're wringing every last ounce of performance out of them allows you to, to do more iterations and test more combinations and more models and get uh, better accuracy. Uh, and then making it all self-service. This is the other thing we're big believers in. You know, we don't want to have a process where there's a lack of automation and people you know, need to call someone down the hall and wait for them to get back from their lunch break to get stuff done. So we'll talk a little bit more about the infrastructure we've built at Capital One. And, you know, as I mentioned, we, we build it all on top of Amazon. And, and in fact, we, we love it when, you know, the more, the more services Amazon comes out with, the more stuff that we don't have to maintain, technical debt we don't have to incur, and the more we can leverage Amazon. And so we're always, you know, very happy when, even if we have a project that Amazon comes out with something that's doing something very similar, we're, 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 uh, we're, we eagerly kill off what we're doing and, and <laughs> use Amazon's when it, when it makes sense and when they've achieved feature parity on it. And so right now, uh, where we are, where we're investing heavily um, on top of Amazon services are, the first thing is really what we call experiment management. And so this is, if you have, you know, 100 machine learning engineers running different experiments, how do you make sure that for all the, the different models you're building, the domains you're going on, that you're, that you're kind of capturing all the learnings as you go on and you're doing it in a way that um, you're learning and you're evolving and, and you can go back and look at the history of that. Uh, and also so you can show your regulators, you know, if, if in our case, or, or, you know, or just satisfy yourself that um, if you made a decision about a customer six months ago, you know, why did you make that decision? What was the model thinking? What data did you train on? What did the model look like on that date? And, um, and, and really being able to, um, to capture that. So, you know, things like logging, right? So you need to make sure you're, you're, you have a centralized logging service. Um, we actually use machine learning to analyze a lot of the logs coming off of the models. Um, versioning. So using, uh, we use Git and other tools to version all of our models, but in, a, in an automated way. So when production, when, when changes are pushed to the model, they can automatically be deployed, um, but they're also captured and tagged in a very, uh, uh, you know, in, in a way that, um, uh, that can't be mutated so that we have a, a very, you know, set in stone history of what's happened with all of our models. Um, reproducibility. That gets back to what I was talking about. It's both the kind of the version of the model and the data that was trained and, uh, when it was coming in. And if you have any underlying data stores that are, that are part of your feature generation, you know, making sure you understand the state of them so you can go back at any point in time and really understand exactly why any action was taken or a prediction was made. And then monitoring. 
So with monitoring, you know, we, we look for deviations in behavior. So as we're deploying these models and developing new models and pushing them out to production, um, they have changes, right? And they perform differently over time. And it's really important that you can kind of zero in on where those performance differences are and make sure they're, they're, they're what you want. And if you see deviations in performance from models over time, um, you need to have a, a really rock solid way of those being flagged and escalated, in particular if you're working in a, in a regulated environment like we've been talking about. So that's the first layer. I think this is really kind of the foundation for our uh, deep learning and machine learning projects at Capital One. It's a project we call Rubicon internally. And then I would say the next, the, the second big category of investment we're making right now, once we got you know, Rubicon started, um, was as we started to kind of get more sophisticated and, and start to do more large scale models and training, um, we really focused in a lot about optimizing and, and scaling these things up. And so that's both um, optimizing and scaling the machine learning experts, but also the, the compute infrastructure, right? So um, model optimization, this is that hyperparameter optimization we were talking about earlier. So how can we you know, make sure that we're really efficiently testing out different models and different uh, configurations for those models? And hyperparameter optimization is a technique that's been around for a very long time. Um, and, uh, but the, the interesting thing is, with deep learning, it takes on a renewed importance and it also requires new techniques. And so, in the past where people have been able to get away with, you know, relatively grid search to search the parameter, a uh, simple grid search to search the parameter space, or, you know, I think some of the more sophisticated um, uh, open source projects and services have used Bayesian techniques. Um, but there's, there's, there's a lot more things you can do than that, especially when you get into really large um, uh, parameter spaces and that, that some of these complex deep model deep, um, that require. So, you know, that's an area where we've really chosen to, uh, to focus in on. When you have models where a single training run can be, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, um, being able to get a really nice lift on your optimization there of the way you're, you're searching the parameter space, um, can, it just pays huge dividends. It allows you to run a lot more, uh, a lot more experiments, and, it, and that ultimately translates into more accuracy and more lift and a big competitive advantage. Uh, GPU saturation, I mentioned this previously, but one of the things that we really focus on is, you know, GPUs is, you know, they're, they're very, uh, um, they're very finicky in the way they perform, and so making sure that, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you have a nice big cluster of those nice Volta GPUs that Dan mentioned, which we are big fans of, um, making sure that uh, as you're paying for them by the second or by the minute, um, that every single second they're fully saturated and working and that you have data loaded into them, uh, and that, that's tricky. And that gets into sort of the broader category of data compute coordination. So when you're building on Amazon, you know, a lot of times you're, if, you have a, if, you're, if you have a large uh, multi, you know, hundreds of terabytes or petabytes scale data storage, or it's in S3, but you need to actually get it onto the local compute nodes in order to saturate, to get, the, get it processed. And the way you kind of manage that and, and that whole data distribution to all your different nodes um, is an area that uh, can, you, can, you can waste a lot of money on if you don't do that efficiently. All right, so we just covered the technical side. We're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the organizational side and the way we kind of set up our teams for success here. And so first we're going to talk about the, the people on the team, and uh, Dan's going to offer a few thoughts on some of the stuff that he's seen out in industry, and then I'll talk a little bit about what we see at Capital One. Sure. Back on. Right, so my back on. Okay, so... What we had on our minds here when, when we discussed about this is how, how do we answer the question of who do I hire for, right? You want to build a team of data scientists or you want to build a machine learning team. And the first call out here is that machine learning is inherently interdisciplinary. As in, you want to have a team of not just scientists or not just developers or not just uh, analysts. You want to have a team that can go through the entire process, the entire machine learning process from analyzing the problem to integrating and collecting the data to doing the actual machine learning work of building a model and to do the DevOps and CI CD piece of putting the model in production. And if you've built teams of engineering uh, and science folks, you know that these are skills that really grow. Sometimes there's a common ground, but many times they grow independently and you wanna make sure that you hire for that. You wanna make sure that you hire the people that can cover the whole ground without having to get someone to do things that um, they're not great at. So we figure out these four profiles. One is physical scientists. These are the folks that have a background maybe in physics or chemistry or biochemistry or all this sort of stuff. People tend to think that machine learning requires a PhD in maths or statistics. 
it helps, but you can get a lot of uh, uh, productivity out of someone that actually studied physics uh, or biochemistry because they're used to working with sensor data, they're used to analyzing data, and they're used to bringing that into real-world um, <coughs> analysis. The other thing is that you want an analyst. You want someone that can, again, come up with the right questions for the problem. You want someone that can basically generate questions every time around a certain business space, right? So the analyst can understand the business problem. The analyst can generate the questions that the scientists and the other folks can try to come up with machine learning models for. The third thing is that you want a computer scientist, of course. So you want someone that understands computer logic and machine learning, someone that can write code, and someone yet that can essentially build your own, your whole uh, software piece of creating a model and putting the model in production. And you want an architect and or an integrator. That's the person that can put everything together. That's the person that can go across different industries and speak the language of a scientist a little bit, speak the language of an analyst a little bit, speak the language of the computer scientist a little bit, and then see the big picture of how, how everything is going to fit um, in production. So I'm gonna hand over to um, Adam, and he's gonna let us know how he did this. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so you know, just to underscore this, the, um, uh, this is one of the most important parts in getting the, in pr the project success right here, just getting the right group of people, and that collaboration between the engineering, the software engineering teams, the business intent owners, the data scientists, and the machine learning experts, and being able to bridge the gap between all those different groups is is a, a huge, huge um, obstacle to success can be. And so I, I can't uh, underscore how important it is to really focus on that and getting the right mix of people and the people who can bridge gaps and be connectors involved with your projects. So we'll talk a little bit about how we organize for success. Um, there's there's a few things here. So you know, one of the big goals, like, I think for success in machine learning is attracting and motivating the right talent, right? It, because, um, you know, there's all this talk about 10x or 100x engineers, and I think with machine learning, you absolutely see that. Like, getting some of the best talent and the best people and creating an attractive environment for them is, is really the most critical thing you can do. And it's tough because it's a very competitive space right now. Uh, you know, we're, there's, there's a lot of very attractive places to work, and people are, are uh, you know, I think any field where you have... Um, where, where people can create, like individual people can create that much value for a large business, um, the market is responding and, and uh, you know, really uh, valuing those employees as they should. And so you have to really, not, it's not just about salary, it's about really creating a great workplace where they know um, there's going to be room for kind of intellectual experimentation, that they're going to be valued, that they're going to get to work on interesting work, they're going to have challenging problems, they're going to have opportunities to do things like speak at conferences, publish academic papers, which is very, you know, very, uh, a uh, big part of the machine learning world, and, and do all those things. Um, create a positive work environment for ML talent. Like, that goes, you know, echoes into the themes and attracting and, and motivating them. But once they get there, you, know, you spend a lot of work recruiting them. And so the last thing you want to do is, is have a high degree of attrition because you haven't created a, a nice environment for them to work in. And so you, know, you really have to understand kind of the creative mindset that, that a lot of the people come in and, and really make that an attractive environment. And then one of the things that we believe at Capital One and we've done in the past with other kind of new and emerging technologies and machine learning is far from new, but as an, a, a kind of a, um, an applied uh, engineering discipline in computer science, it's, it's a new and hot technologies, I'm sure you guys know right now. We start by centralizing that. Uh, and the reason for that is because it creates a really strong community of practice, right? And so we have a group, which I'll talk about in a little bit, that we've created. Um, and and th these people love working in this central group because if they want to bounce ideas off each other, get smarter from each other, they can do that, right? And if you need uh, an expert in one topic or if you have questions or there's an area that you want to understand, you can get a lot farther faster if you're working in a big group of people who are all really, you know, really into the same things you're into and into machine learning. Um, and then, you know, one of the challenges is that over time as these new emerging technologies, whether it's mobile or cloud or, or now machine learning, become more mainstream, at some point the, the skill sets become more just broadly distributed. And, and that's good, too. And, and managing that transition from a centralized group to, to a more distributed model over time is something that, you know, we really pay a lot of attention to and make sure we do that properly. So the group we created at Capital One, uh, we created a new center of excellence in 2016 called the Center for Machine Learning, or C4ML as we call it. And that's you know, been the, the centralized machine learning group. And we actually work on 
Um, when we started in 2016, kind of the mission was around taking on doing machine delivery, doing machine learning projects, building out that infrastructure that I've been talking about, educating the rest of the enterprise on what machine learning is and how to, how to think about it, how to apply it to different business domains, and really creating those attractive recruiting pipelines for the, uh, for the entire enterprise. And then finally, doing research, right? Doing fundamental research both independently and in collaboration with, with academia. Um, and so we've been focused on steadily growing that. I would say one of the things that we did when we started out is we took on a lot of small, um, for the first seven or eight months while we were really getting off the ground and scaling and spending a lot of time interviewing and recruiting, um, we, we took on, the projects we took on were kind of small to medium-sized projects that were not necessarily right in the heart of the business, but, but were um, important projects, projects that had a very clear ROI and delivered a lot of business value, but didn't necessarily, weren't the core business systems. And uh, that allowed us to do a few things. One, it allowed us to really kind of show the business the value of machine learning and, and, and what you can do with it. It also allowed us to develop some muscle with our delivery chops, too. And, and when you have a new team with a lot of new people, it's really important to kind of build that, that teamwork and build that, that team chemistry. Uh, and then at some point after doing that, you know, we, we, we got a lot of momentum that way, and it was great. Uh, and, and so more recently, we've, we've taken a step back and, and sort of said, all right, how do we really go hard after the core problems in financial services and really you know, use machine learning to create a lot of value there? Because that's clearly, clearly where we want to be. Um, there's a lot wrapped up in that, but um, the Center for Machine Learning has really equipped us well. And having that big, that big uh, critical mass of people in one group has just been a really positive uh, thing for us because you know, if, you, if you're working on a problem and you need someone who's an expert in you know, click detection in graphs or LSTMs or whatever the subject is, you know, the people, are, you go out to lunch with them every day, you, you have them around you, you're surrounded by them. And it's created this really strong community of practice that even over time as we, as we decentralize and it becomes more distributed, that'll, that'll, that'll stick with us and create a really, uh, really good chemistry where groups are communicating well and turning to each other for help. Um, so I highly recommend you know, starting out with a center of excellence or similar type of model. And so, you know, at Capital One, the thing that, you know, really gets us excited is just if you look at, at the way industries have been disrupted from healthcare or are being disrupted or on the cusp of being disrupted from healthcare to transportation um, to, to any number of other ones, you know, financial services is, is uh, clearly one that we think, you know, can be doing a better job for our customers. And so the things that we really look at is how do we create amazing customer experiences, right, with hyper-personalization of experiences when you're interacting with them, uh, intelligent assistance, uh, conversational interfaces, um, how, do, how can we increase efficiency, creating value for our customers? So, you know, if we look at some of our, our business processes, and any, any enterprise has business processes that, you know, are ripe for, for being more efficient using ML and AI. And the great thing is, if we, can, if we can capture some of that efficiency, we can return that value to our customers in things like, you know, offering more uh, higher cash back or better rewards on cards or any number of ways that we can, we can really um, turn that into, into better value for our customers. And then the last thing, you know, we always think about is, are there machine learning in many industries has prevented, presented just entirely new ways of doing things. So self-driving cars or uh, it's just been disruptive. And so, you know, in financial services, there's always this idea that banking hasn't really changed fundamentally for, for you know, hundreds of years. Like, are there, are there new possibilities that machine learning presents? And that's something that we, uh, uh, we really enjoy considering the possibilities there. So that's Capital One in a nutshell, and those kind of the lessons learned there. Um, I think we'll, uh, that's all I have. We're going we're gonna to take a few times. Ah. Yeah. So just a quick call out. Uh, this is the Deep Learning Summit that's happening on Thursday. Um, feel free to show up and then learn some practical, hands-on uh, things about AI and machine learning and deep learning. It's, we, we're fired up about it, and we hope that we, we're going to see you there. So with that, we have time for a few questions. Yeah, there's mics here and here if anyone wants to ask a couple of questions. And we'll be around afterwards if people want to come up and talk to us about any of the stuff they saw here. Great. All right, well, we'll, uh, we'll gather on the stage. Thanks, guys. <laughs>